0: Oh, so you like listening to podcasts, huh? Well, so do a lot of people. As a matter of fact, millions of listeners are tuning into podcasts every week, and your next customer could be one of them. Did you know that podcast advertising is one of the most effective ways to advertise your product or service? And it's really easy to get started. Just go to podbean.com slash brands. That's p o slash brands to start boosting your business with podcast advertising today. You're listening to Australia's Tax News Podcast. Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals.
1: Welcome to episode 67 of Tax Talks. This is Heidi Robson. I'm stating the obvious when I say that it is part of life that one day we need to call it a day. One day we need to leave our practice. But how do we actually pull this off? be it as a tax or best agent an accountant or financial advisor, what options do we have? I asked Stephen Fine of Growth Focus in Sydney to walk us through the options we have. Stephen is a business broker for what he calls financial service practices, so tax and best agents, accountants and financial planners, so basically all of us. My first question to Stephen is, which one is your bigger client base, tax and accounting or financial planners? Who calls you when they want to sell? Here's Stephen. 50-50.
0: I have 50% as accounting practices and 50% is financial planning businesses.
1: If I'm an accountant or a tax agent or a financial advisor and I'm thinking of exiting either fully or partly... What are the options
0: I have? Look, there's a number of different options that you can look at. But before we even go there, we always direct people to this question. And that is, forget the noise out there. Forget about all these different management buyouts and cash cows, transition and LBOs and handouts. It can get very, very confusing. Forget about that and just start with yourself and say, look, let me just think of my own personal situation. And for me, what would be the ideal scenario for me? How much longer do I want to work on for? Do I want to work part-time or do I want to exit and stop straight away? We encourage people to ask those questions of themselves before anything else. You don't start with the way if you're not sure that that's the way that you want to go. What we've done is we actually developed a questionnaire because we found when people put in place an exit strategy, it was just like boiling the ocean because we really didn't understand what would work for them and their personal Mm -hmm. circumstances. And even they didn't understand what would work for them and their personal circumstances. So they hadn't even done the internal assessment of themselves. They were going too quickly to the solution and not saying, okay, begin with me. So first step we always say is begin with yourself. We borrowed the principle around the net promoter score, which was a, a concept that Bain Consulting used. Apple and Google use it when they get customer feedback. And quite simply, it's on a scale of zero to ten, on a scale of zero, very unlikely, ten, absolutely, I would refer. The, the the concept with this net promoter score, if it's anything under eight, they're not going to do it. They're just not going to do it. It has to be eight or above. We've kind of adopted that. There's many questions here. There's questions about control. How do you feel about giving away control? So we use this naught to ten scale. Now, if someone says six out of ten be happy remaining on as an employee, it's going to be a problem It's a red flag, even though it's leaning towards yeah it'll be fine. We don't think it'll be fine that's how we use this questionnaire.
1: How many questions do you? Uh, there's start. about
0: there's about 16 questions.
1: I see, and then that and gives you a first indication of what. The it gives us a sense,
0: has. and it tells a story.
1: Yeah. And it also probably helps the seller to think about himself and what he actually or he she actually wants.
0: Absolutely, there's questions there that a lot of people just haven't asked themselves. That helps us to clarify what's going to be the right path to take. Mm-hmm. This is a really good question that we ask here on the scale of 1 to 10. The new partner coming in. Are you comfortable making further acquisitions with a new partner? Now, if the answer is anything under 8, to us it's a flag. You're not comfortable enough. If it's an 8 and above, if you've got the one partner who says, yes, I want to acquire, I want to acquire, I want to acquire, and you've got the other partner who's on a 6 or a 7 regarding acquisitions, There's going to be a problem.
1: So with any of these questions, if the old partner gives a 10 and the new partner coming in gives something less than 9, it's always an issue. Well,
0: they're out of alignment, so Mm. we know that there's going to be an issue with that. Mm. So
1: when you have a staged succession, then both partners need to go through this questionnaire to see whether they're on the same wavelength. Highly encouraged. Mm.
0: Highly encouraged. It's one of these things that the question's not asked. It's going to get asked eventually, down the track, once you're married, once you're deep in it to get out of it, and then that's when the conflicts can happen.
1: So at the very start… Somebody who's thinking about exiting, they should go through this questionnaire to make sure they know what they want. But if it then comes into a stage succession where two people need to work together, then it's very important that both of them do the questionnaire to make sure they are on the same wavelength.
0: Absolutely. It's like two people getting married and one desperately wants to have children and the other one doesn't. But they get married and because they never actually discussed it before. <laughs> the questionnaire we've got a lot clearer picture of what's going to work for them Mm -hmm. and as importantly what's not going to work for them you know there's two main avenues one is a succession uh, external where someone from outside the business comes in and takes over the business okay and then there's internal maybe someone who's working within the business has been there for a long time and they step up and take over the business. Hmm. So in the big picture, it's either an external or internal.
1: I can you imagine internal doesn't involve a business broker as often as external. Uh, yes,
0: most of what we do is external. I mean, we also ask the question when uh, someone comes to us and says, so we want to sell our business, I often ask the question, well, you know, this may do us out of a job, but is there anyone inside the business that could purchase the business? It hardly ever happens that they look to sell externally, and then they change their mind and it happens internally. Usually you'd uh, look at you know what's already within the business and if there's any potential there, you're going to explore it first. It does happen the other way around where we may have someone who comes to us and said, look, I've been in discussions with my practice manager for the last two years and yes, they really want to buy the business and we just can't work it out and we can't agree on a price and I don't know if they've got the money or if they've got the intention. And it's also very difficult because you know this person very well and it's hard to negotiate with someone you've got a long-term working relationship with. Often the internal succession isn't the best way to go and doesn't work. So that's when you'd look at external. Succession options, if you're looking internally, buyout where the managers get together and say, okay, we're going to buy the business. For the larger businesses, employees share ownership plans. Their employees ultimately end up owning the business. Internally, it might be a friendly or known buyer. So they may not have worked within the business, but they know the business very, very well. Maybe a partner or an associated business that's a relationship. An example would be a financial planner and accountant had a long, long relationship. One buys the other out because they know the business very well. Sometimes they may have shared the same premises and operated as two separate businesses.
1: Or shared the same client base.
0: Correct. Yes. In fact, we've got a situation at the moment where we have a financial planner who owns a share of an accounting practice, and he's actually selling his financial planning business and the share in the accounting practice as one sale. So, yes, it does, it does happen where they acquire across the boundaries.
1: I can imagine you've seen a lot of management buyouts, but I can imagine you haven't seen so many employee share.
0: Yes, no, the employee share ownership plans are really for the, generally, the, you know, the top-tier organisations. So, yeah, look, we touch on it, but it's not something that we really get involved in. And the management buyout also needs to be a fairly sizable business. I mean, you don't, you don't see a lot of that at the practice level. There need to be a number of managers getting together, so it needs to be of, of a certain size.
1: I see. So a management buyout is always when several people buy the, the business together.
0: Generally, yes. Another internal option is a stage succession where an internal buyer may buy a percentage and then a certain percentage over time and then another percentage for a staged period. There's some advantages in a staged I- internal sale. First of all, it's a, f- it's a friendly transaction. Everybody knows each other and you've probably worked together for years. So generally it's a smoother transition. There's less due diligence required because the people know the business. The buyer is more likely to preserve what's there. The staff are, are generally motivated to stay. Often when a new acquirer comes in, the staff are like, "Oh, what's going to change? People resist change. They fear their jobs, etc. So there's less of that in the transition. The other advantage is all parties are committed to making sure that it does work. But don't
1: you have you, that in any transition? No,
0: mean, well, not necessarily. Uh, if I bought 100% of your business, you've got the money. You can go and play golf. You can go to the beach. It doesn't really matter ah, yes, if it works or not. Yeah. So here you've got the buyer who's just put more money in, more skin in the game. And you've got the seller or the person who is exiting slowly over time still has skin in the game. So it's in everybody's interest to ensure that it works. And one of the other advantages is that staged buyout, a person exiting can participate in the business's growth and increased value over time.
1: So these are the advantages?
0: Those are the advantages. There are risks, however. One of the risks is that people may have gone into a looser agreement with someone you know You've trusted, you've worked together. Yeah, she'll be right. We'll work it out. Yes, we've got an understanding, but circumstances change. And when circumstances change, you're open to disagreements and and expectations. So the looser agreement type arrangements can be problematic, not initially, but down the track. The other one, and this is one that I've come across a a number of times, is dangerous assumption about the, the buyer's funding, whether they will actually have the funding to complete the transaction. can think of an example where a practice principal brought in a new partner and the idea was that this new partner would purchase the balance at a particular point in time. Circumstances changed. They were stuck with 50% of the business, an inability to purchase the rest. The vendor or the person who was aiming to exit over time was now handcuffed, couldn't get the funding, couldn't exit. Because he could only sell half a business and nobody was interested in half half a business. business. So it didn't work out well.
1: That's a huge risk.
0: It's a huge risk. The new partner didn't want to sell her either. The new partner was also very selective about anyone else coming in. Very selective.
1: So the old partner basically lost half half of the business.
0: Well, they still had half of the business, but they weren't able to exit on their terms.
1: And so that's still going on? Do you know how that Well,
0: ends? it's still going on, mm. yes. The
1: poor old partner is still, the poor
0: old <laughs> partners still locked up there. When they do bring in a new partner, the younger partners is blackballing them and not wanting it. And No one really likes to buy into a conflict that doesn't have controlling interest in a business. That's not an appealing option for any new acquirer, unless obviously it's a very large business. But at the practice level, any acquirer generally would want a controlling interest
1: Mm. So there's basically no solution for the old partner apart from somehow breaking the business into two and savaging uh,
0: Yes, and it's, it's damaging. It's not the best outcome for everyone involved. The internal acquisition is the, the buyer's dilemma. The buyer's buying X amount of equity at a certain stage and the business is valued at X. And then down the track, they're buying another chunk of equity and the business is valued at, why? Now, they contributed significantly to the growth. So, in a lot of cases, they ask the question, hold on a second, why am I paying extra because of my own efforts? So, that's what we call the internal buyer's dilemma. The more effort and contribution I put in, the higher price I'm gonna pay. So, it's just something to think about when designing these type of structures.
1: You only have that issue when you have a staged exit. If you do a clear, full internal sale, then you don't have that issue. You only have the problem if the payments or the, or the capital transactions are, transaction staged, are correct. staged. Can you tell me what a workout is? Isn't Isn't a workout like a staged succession?
0: Uh, yes, but a workout infers that um, the seller is responsible for the performance of the business over a certain amount of time from the sale.
1: I see. So a workout is like an earn-out.
0: It's like uh, an earn-out. Yes, okay. it's the same, same okay. thing.
1: Okay. Yeah. Have you ever seen an earn-out arrangement working out? Arrangement no, I've
0: seen there. payments uh, come out, absolutely. Yeah. But I think the issue is that of control. Uh, you're asking me to deliver X result without the full control. So if the new buyer puts in a new system and the original principal goes, mm, I don't know about how I would have done it this way or that way, and my performance is based on this and I'm not really happy with the way they're operating the business, that can create tension.
1: So earn arrangements are always quite conflict.
0: Yeah, there's a potential conflict based on that. It's this tussle between control and being responsible for the performance.
1: So, a stage succession is when the old partner is still continuing to work and slowly gives up equity. And an earnout is basically a full sale, but part of the price is determined later based on the continuing performance. Correct. And so, then the last in the internal is cash flow.
0: Oh, cash flow? And there
1: you have, yeah, cash flow. And there you have XXX.
0: The last in this list uh, internally is cash cow. And the cash cow is really, you don't sell, you don't do anything. You step back and you still own the business and you just watch the business run. And that's your cash cow. You take the dividend.
1: You come in for two, three hours a day. Correct. Actually, I've I've seen that happening. Right. I'm seeing that happening with a senior partner who is 80 years old now.
0: Right. Generally, that works well when there's over-reliance on the owner.
1: It can happen in combination with other options. So, for example, the uh, senior partner gives up a share of his equity but then continues treating his equity as a cash cow.
0: The question, though, then comes in about control and ultimate exit. So let's discuss uh, external options. I mean, there's this staged succession but externally, it's a very, very similar concept. You know, the only difference is the person that, that comes in hasn't been involved in the business up until that point. But once they're in, you're still in the same dynamic as when it's an internal stage succession.
1: And you have the same risks.
0: And it's, you've got the same risks.
1: You mentioned something about timed staged buyouts.
0: Yeah, so, you know, timed staged buyout. An example might be an acquirer purchases a, a minority stake in the business. And there's contracts in place to fully purchase the business within a stipulated time period. So the acquirer provides funding if required, supports the growth and profitability of the business, puts their resources in and looks to improve efficiencies and cost saving. And the acquirer may also provide funding for new acquisitions. You know, in many cases, it allows the principals to raise debt without director's guarantees. The acquirer is usually an industry participant, so they may do this with a number of different businesses. And generally, the advantages are scale advantages, allowing the, the business to operate on a lower cost base. Acquirers may, in these circumstances, pay a premium for the business. At the point that the purchase is familiar with the business and the buying risk is significantly reduced, that's when they would complete the transaction.
1: And so in this case, it's less of a risk that the um, stages don't go through because it's more timed,
0: It's more timed, but it's also you're dealing with a larger organisation who's been there and done that.
1: Yes, it's with the gross partner.
0: Correct. They want to see this complete and they're doing it with multiple organisations. It's it's not like you're dealing with one individual who circumstances may change. They might have a breakdown or marital problems or decide they wanted to change their career. This is a big organisation that's got a bigger agenda, so there's less chance of change.
1: So if we have kind of a normal stage succession, we are bringing in one person. When we have a timed stage buyout with a growth partner, we are basically handing it over to a large company, be it you know, yes. Be it an SMSF practice that we now hand over to Hefron or Ke- I think KPMG just sold their SMSF yeah. business, but you know, you hand it over to a really large growth yeah, partner. Yeah, it's
0: like a battleship versus a little tugboat. A tugboat can change their mind very quickly and you're in trouble. The battleship, it's going in a certain direction. It's a lot more predictable.
1: The risks you... ...pointed out about a small stage succession and not so much there when you do a stage succession with the gross partner. Correct,
0: correct. It's a lot harder for Battleship to turn around. So the the most common exit that we deal with is the full sale. It's possibly the simplest and most profitable exit. The reason it's generally the simplest and the most profitable is one can go to the market, create a sense of competition around the purchase... There's a lot less working parts. It's a lot simpler. This is the asset. This is the price. You know what you're getting. This is the contract. These are the payments, and it's a lot easier to do.
1: And you get the whole market to compete.
0: You get the whole market to compete.
1: That's the one you prefer most. That's the one you like the most.
0: Yes, I mean, that's the one we do most of. That's the one I think we can provide the most value to. Generally, th- that's where the highest value comes for the Exeter. the workouts, similar to an earn-out, the agreement is made, but the seller needs to ensure that the performance is held at a particular level to receive the remaining payment.
1: So with a, with a workout or an earn-out, the seller leaves or the seller still stays?
0: The seller still stays and the seller's still got to deliver an agreed level of performance.
1: Oh, I see. I thought it was an earn-out arrangement the seller left, but of course they don't.
0: No, they need to earn their way out. So it may be an example where, look, we're going to agree to X amount for the price of the business, right? However, you, who continue as manager, need to keep it at a certain level of profitability. If that profitability drops, well, we may need to adjust the price because of that.
1: Is it also possible that you can have an earn-out arrangement where the seller leaves and then um and then the buyer only has to pay extra if the sales go over a certain amount?
0: Uh yeah, yes, I've I've seen that. I wouldn't call it an earn out. And the that's probably
1: s- flawed because the moment the seller leaves, of course the the numbers will always end up being in a way that the buyer doesn't have to pay more.
0: Uh yes, I mean assuming everyone's honest, it it really comes down to the incentive. So, so there's not as huge of an incentive to, to really drive it because you, you, the more you drive it, the more you're paying for it. So yes. it's a little bit of a dilemma there. And so I wouldn't it, call it an earnout. out I, You know, sometimes we have the dilemma with sellers who go, well, I'm leaving some money on the table. I'm not going to be there. What happens if these new buyers uh, mess the business up? Why should I be penalized?
1: So earnout mm-hmm. arrangements usually have the seller staying on until the earnout arrangement comes to an end.
0: Correct, yes.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I can imagine it works because then the seller is there and has an eye on the numbers.
0: The next option listed is an IPR. At the practice level we see a lot of and you get paginal roll up where they 're making acquisitions of practices and want, want to list it that way but as a general rule you know if we 're talking at the practice level it 's not really an option so we talk about mergers. the reality is when it comes to mergers, very rarely are the two parties coming to the table as equals there 's generally one party who's going to be a controlling party. The definitions of an upstream merger is where a smaller company seeks out a larger firm. And then the downstream merger is a larger company that's looking out for a firm in order to help them grow mm. a smaller company.
1: And so that means any merger is always an upstream and a downstream merger. Correct. At the same
0: time. It, yes. I mean let's call it merger in a perfect world you think, you know, everyone's happy and everyone's equal and one and one makes Three fantastic, in principle, sounds all good, but downsides of it are cultural clashes, not mixing well together, liabilities, hidden liabilities that pop up that weren't anticipated, new management disagreeing, employee motivation, and ultimately the smaller companies is giving up control. That's the reality of it. In any merger, if there's an unhappy party, well, they generally stop producing and it lowers the total value. The exit options and the the pros and cons of each one and whether it's a full sale, a part sale, a full sale over time. And in looking at that, one can get quite confused, not know where to turn or what avenue to follow. So again, just take it back to the very, very beginning. Forget about it all and just think of yourself and ask yourself these key questions. That's generally where I would start in any question around exit and succession. be prescriptive to someone if I don't know their circumstances I mean the reality is we do more of these than anything else more of so, the trade sales yeah but that's also because we've chosen to do that so I don't want to be mm. saying this is more popular than this because it's not like I've got a fair sample size mm. okay? because more people who are doing trade sales are going to come to us than people who want to do friendly or known buyer deal or a management buyout or a state succession it's, it's, it's unlikely mm. yes we do have people and we do work with people in that area But more people are going to come to us for the trade sale than they are going to come to us for that. I wouldn't be giving you a fair sample size if I said, this is more popular than that.
1: Yes, because you tend to only see a certain Um, action. um, Correct,
0: because that's more of our primary focus is is the trade sales. We can go on and on about the the various exit options, internal, external management, buyouts, stage succession, workouts, cash cows. Mm -hmm trade sales, and can go on and on. But at the end of the day, none of that really matters. The most important thing is understanding yourself, and challenge is really the diagnosis stage. Once you understand yourself and know what's going to work and what's not going to work, then you start looking at these avenues. But the diagnosis is the big challenge. Spend the time diagnosing, be very, very clear on the results, and then look for the solutions. Don't even explore any solutions before you've done the diagnosis.
1: Stephen mentions a questionnaire to find out what the ideal exit for you would look like, doing a diagnosis of what would or wouldn't work. You can find the questionnaire on the Growth Focus website, but I will also put a link in the show notes. In the next episode, episode 68, Ian Taylor, chair of the Tax Professionals Board, We'll talk about continuing professional education. And talking about CPE, you know that you can claim CPE for every episode of Text Talks you listen to. I just want to check that you know that every episode of Text Talks counts as CPE without any cap. So thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. Are you the proprietor of a business selling shaving kits, meal packs, audiobooks or anything else of the sort? Have you failed to tap the market of people who love hearing their favorite comedians talk about their boring lives? What's wrong with you? 57% of US consumers listen to podcasts every month. That's a lot of ears that could be hearing about your brand. Go to podbean.com/brands to learn how it do. That's p o d b e a n.com/brands and you could be the one talking instead of me.